so later on in my career, when I had the time to kind of step back, I started to question whether those ideals and whether sport was living up to the stuff that kind of brought me into it initially. Well, welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a scientist by trade dedicated to supporting people to progress and achieve performance. And the purpose behind these podcasts is to dig into the principles, the complexities, the subtleties of performance so that we can better understand this thing that drives us to reach for more, for achievement and for the richer experience of climbing higher. And I'll be discussing these concepts with the people who've achieved, driven and explored aspects of performance in real depth. And so to this week's guest, Tim Harper from Harper Performance. So let me ask you a few questions to frame what this one's all about. First, do you ever wonder if sport is truly living up to its pure ideals? Second, have you ever wondered if high performance support should be available to a wider community of sporting talent beyond the resource rich or the big countries with big economies? And lastly, do you ever find yourself just asking for more and more resource to solve a problem rather than switching your thinking to do less in order to be more effective? Well, Tim Harper is someone who hasn't just asked these questions, but he's doing something about them. Tim has done something quite unusual, really, in performance sport. And most people wouldn't dream of stepping out of professional sports performance bubble. And what he's done is set up a social enterprise, Harper Performance, that identifies problem solves and creates opportunities to support athletes and coaches in disadvantaged parts of the world. Tim is doing so because he is on a mission to give sport back some of its purer spirit, to diversify our thinking about preparation and performance, and in his words, to fiercely champion the underdog. Tim is a humble, compelling, driven, deep thinker of a man, and it was an absolute privilege to hear his story. If you're inspired by Tim's efforts, then you can hear him speak at the Supporting Champions Conference in March. And if you're even more inspired, then you can contribute to the Kanju campaign on his site, harperperformance.co.uk. Tim, great to see you. How are we doing? Great to be here. I'm good. Really good. So, I'm really keen to understand a little bit more about this amazing social enterprise initiative that you're, you're driving at and the purpose behind, behind that. I'd be keen to, to find out a little bit more about you and kind of how you sort of started out on this road mm-hmm. um, as, as, as much as anything. So, what's your kind of background? Tell us a little bit about that. So, I think my background's pretty similar to the peers in performance support of my kind of generation. I think that we were we were part of that that generation that performance support was definitely a thing. It was very much established in, in professional elite sport. But outside of that, it wasn't really a, a thing that people knew of. Hmm. Um, I think that when, when I went to uni, it was still kind of a subject that only a few universities did. Um, and I think I kind of rode that wave going in saying, I, I want to work in elite sport. Um, I was... I had a natural affinity to kind of, I guess, exercise physiology. I think the idea of exercise physiology excited me. And I think, so I I went to uni with that idea and then I think I came across strength and conditioning and that became almost an obsession that I was going to be a strength and conditioning coach. And I kind of set off on that path. 
um, I worked with the British Army rugby team whilst I was at uni mm. uh, with a guy called Chris Williams, who was an incredible guy. Um, and then I managed to beg Brian to steal my way into an internship at Saracens. Um, and that kind of kind of set the ball moving into, in terms of, I guess, a career in professional support, in professional sport um, as a swim conditioning coach. So I spent three, four years at Saris, um, and then I moved on to London Scottish, uh, down in southwest London, as the head of strength conditioning, and then that kind of morphed into head of performance. Um, I did that, and then I kind of, I think at the end of that, I spent like two, three years at London Scottish, and then Kind of, I think I got to that stage. I think that a lot of people get to in their career. Where I wasn't coaching very much anymore. Mm. Um, I was managing departments. I, I really enjoyed that side of things. I enjoyed managing the kind of the whole performance, the sports medicine, the sports science, the strength conditioning side of things. But I, um, I wasn't really coaching very much. Um, and I think that's where my career kind of went off on a totally different, right. different tangent. So that's interesting. Can I, can I ask you about a word you used back there? So you had an interest in exercise physiology mm. and then you discovered strength conditioning and it became an obsession. Mm. What, what was that? That sounds like an acceleration in, in focused learning, in, in understanding your kind of career destination. Yeah. What caused that? Um, I think a number of factors. I think the primary factor was that and it's an Oprah, but I I spent I, I spent my school well, yeah <laughs> oh yeah I spent my school days as kind of a, a bit of a kind of um, a waste of talent. Like I, I was blessed with a pretty good brain, um, but I never ever sort of fulfilled that potential. Um, I was lucky enough to go to a good school, and I had the had every, everything there for me to be uh, a really good academic student, and I I didn't do it. I wasted it. Um, then to my late teens, sort of sixth form age, um, we had a family bereavement and that kind of rejigged my whole life. Um, and I kind of, in, in a way that sort of, I, don't, I think there aren't many positives to, to sort of something happening like that. Um, but I think you learn a lot about, I learned a lot about my father at the time um, that you don't get unless you're in that situation. Mm. Um, and I think it kind of, it really threw into question what I was really doing. I was kind of wasting everything that I had, all the opportunities around me I had. And so I knew, I had to kind of, I took a year out after school um, and then I went to university and I, I was just so hungry for something just right. to get stuck into. Um, and I think that's where it really came from. I was just, I think if anything had landed in my lap that I had an affinity to, it was going to become an obsession. It was okay. going to become something that I really got stuck into Wow, oh, yeah. Well, I can I can massively uh, relate to that. Mm. I had a similar similar journey. wasn't wasn't family member, but I was uh, was involved involved in a road traffic accident. Mm. Lost a good friend and, mm. uh, when I was eighteen, and and at the same time, my my mentor um, Colin Clegg was teaching me, and I was doing sl- starting to do well at something, but I had a hunger for to fill a void. Yeah. If you look at all of our friendship group from that, that group of people, they've all splintered around yeah. and gone on to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it acts as an igniter to propel people. Yeah. Um, I think it really did. I think it, and it also, um, it, 
it, it kind of it threw into question a lot about what I'd done up until that point. But also, I think I think I was I come from a big family, massively overachieving family, and I was always happy sitting in that kind of mediocre role in a kind of oh, doesn't really matter, doesn't really matter. Um, but then I found something that it, it did matter to me, and it became this really thing I I really wanted to achieve in it, and I kind of. I guess the fire hasn't gone out yet. It's still been going, and it's yeah. twelve years later, or whatever. So, were you were you dr- already been drawn to the physical preparation in sport before that moment? I think growing up, um, I wasn't a, a very talented sportsman, but what it did bring was work ethic, and I was always one of the sort of fittest um, at, at whatever sport it was. Um, <laughs> and I think that that if you can't do it, teach. Um, and that, that kind of came about in the sense that I really enjoyed the training side of sport. Um, I enjoyed the exercise physiology stuff, the, mm. the human biology side of things, and it just it kind of all fitted together. And I think that when whilst I was ex- when, when I went to uni, I was exposed to kind of that stuff. The the lab uh, work was always my favourite bits, and then there's a particular lecturer, uh, Pascal Kiplan, who was an exercise physiologist, she worked a lot with the IOC and I think kind of piggybacked on a lot of her stuff and a lot of her research. And I just got to see what, what the cool stuff was. Um, yeah. And I think that's what kind of drew me in. Right, okay. Interesting. So you, you found a passion, you, you found an outlet though, I mean that's um, in, in terms of being able to deliver that in, in elite rugby. Mm-hmm. and. Um, and you had the, the additional responsibility of making it happen for other people, so in a management role, that's starting to level up the responsibility and potential impact on those performance environments. Yeah. So take me through from being a practitioner, hands-on coaching, finding myself not coaching as much, mm-hmm. to then when you started to, to think differently about your impact yeah. on this world. Well, I don't think it was necessarily thinking differently about my impact. I think it was thinking differently about sport. Um, I think I was drawn to sport for the kind of reasons we talked about, but also I think that sport uh, has a magnetism about it that sort of draws everybody in. Um, and I've got sort of various theories as to what it is. Um, I, I think the simplicity of it, that for 80 minutes or 90 minutes of the weekend, the world becomes sort of distilled into really simple black and white terms. Um, I think that's something that we yearn for all week and we only get sort of satisfied at the weekend. Um, but I think that the big thing for me was the ideals, like the lofty ideals that sport sort of defines itself by. So later on in my career, when I had the time to kind of step back, I started to question whether those ideals and whether sport was living up to the stuff that kind of brought me into it initially. Can you remember when you started to have those kind of key questions? I think it's I think it's when I left the full-time rugby bubble. Right. Um, I think when you're in the midst of it, it's hard to ask those questions. Uh, but I do think my experience is coming, sort of, to kind of go back a step, I think coming from Saracens, which is an incredible place, and I have the fondest memories of it, and then going to somewhere like London Scottish, they couldn't be more chalk and cheese. It's good. You've got almost a, almost a blank check environment to my office was a porter cabin with no heating. Yeah. and our facilities were a joke. Um, I think I did learn a lot about the kind of haves and the have-nots of sport in that environment. Okay. And I think that coming out of London Scottish and going overseas, particularly when we 
when I was down in, in Southern Africa. Um, I, I remember going to the Zambian Olympic Training Center and uh, it, it struck me, the Chinese built this incredible facility um, mm. and it's everything that Buffalo's got and more probably. They've got like, two swimming pools, every surface imaginable, two athletics tracks, gyms, everything, stadiums, across the way there's the football stadium that would make, make sort of premiership football uh, teams proud. Wow. Um, but it was a ghost town, there was nothing there. Um, and I just, I just thought, it, it's, this is, sport isn't, there's something missing in sport, it's not, it's not working. Why has there never been an Olympic champion from Zambia? Why has there never been a football team that I've heard of from Zambia? Why has there never been a footballer I've heard of from, from, from Zambia? Um, and I think that's what, what, what kind of triggered all these kind of questions to sort of ping around my head. Um, but then it took a long time for those questions to kind of even begin to be answered. Mm. Okay, so even if, it, even if it's just touring facility that's a bit of a white elephant, it's probably someone's vanity dream, mm-hmm. they're thinking, this hasn't, this hasn't made a difference, yeah. this hasn't actually done anything. Exactly. Right, interesting. I must go and visit this place. <laughs> no, it is, it is incredible. It's a sight to see. Um, it's, it's amazing. Mm. Okay, so some dawning realisations, some questions more than anything, mm. and then, okay, then what next? I think... What happened next was um, I made a kind of conscious decision in my head that I didn't want to go back into the bubble. I didn't want to go back into professional sport and just do what I've done for the last 10 years, albeit at a, at a, at a higher level or at a different club or a different environment. Um, and that was a, a big thing for me, kind of giving up on, I guess, what I've been working towards for so long. Um, and I decided I wanted to to do something about making sport live up to the ideals that that I wanted to believe it, it had the promise to or, or had the potential to. Um, and so my first answer was was to say, well, I'm just going to go and volunteer somewhere, whether it be in Zambia where I had links or or, or somewhere else in the world, I'm going to go and find the, the kind of a struggling team, the underdog, yeah. and I'm going to volunteer my services. Um, and it was, it was the epitome of that kind of white saviour mentality where I can solve the issues. I'm Tim Harper, I've got all this experience, all these qualifications, I can solve the issues. If only they put me in the right place, I can solve it all. And that was the plan for a, a good few months. Um, yeah. And I scoured around and I got a few kind of consulting jobs here and there um, overseas. And I was, I came to the very fast realisation that I was doing nothing. I was making no difference whatsoever. I had not a clue what I was doing. I hadn't got the expertise to do what I was doing. Um, and even if I was making a difference, it was a drop in the ocean right. for making actual actual substantive change to make sport more, more fair. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and I thought, okay, well, um, I'm not going to give up. I've kind of I've left the bubble now. I've committed myself to this. What, what can I do? And so I started reading. Uh, and I started talking to as many people as I can. I, two, two and a half years later, I'm still talking to as many people as I can, still reading as much as I can. And I really had to start educating myself about where did this elite performance development come from? Um, why does the UK do things in a certain way? Why, why do certain countries put money into it? And I had to kind of almost reteach myself um, sort of a, a level of understanding around sport. Um, and I think from there, it came 
so the picture started to make sense. It was a bit like that art attack when you were a kid and they would make that piece of art at the end and it slowly starts to make sense. Yeah. Um, and I think there was a similar, similar case here in the sense that I, I started to realise that there was, there was lots of things I couldn't control. I couldn't inject millions of pounds into this environment or that environment. And I couldn't um, make wholesale changes about how sport is structured. But what I can do is I can look at what's missing and then go about trying to tackle that. Okay. And so um, I think what kept on coming up time and time again was if you actually dig down, there isn't a lack of facilities um, in the developing world. Um, I mean, there is in the sense that there's a scarcity of, of facilities, but there are facilities available. Mm. Um, there are technical coaches available. Um, some are exceptionally good at what mm. they do. Um, there are athletes, obviously, there are athletes. Um, What's missing is, is everything else. And maybe I'm biased because I'm looking at it from, from the perspective of, of kind of a performance support practitioner. But performance support is kind of a bit of, it's still seen as a bit of a luxury. Mm. And it's almost the, it's the icing on the cake. And it's totally missing from a lot of these environments that I kept on coming across mm. um, in the developing world. And so I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. And that's great because that's also kind of what I've been doing for a long time. Yeah. So, so how can we make this make this work? Um, and and I guess that's where high performance came from. Yeah. I guess that's where the, where the journey has, has been for the last two years is is sort of saying, well, it is missing, and what can we do about that? Um, and it's not it's not simple. It's not a simple solution. No. So. So as you're observing these environments and seeing the components that were there, and recognizing that they were at a certain level and seeing that gap mm. um, what was the the flip what was the, the moment where you thought that's probably what's most needed because ultimately you could put resource into another aspect that might have equal effect in, in that sense or is that are there any other aspects of that supporting service mm. that, that enhances the overall environment that you saw I think it's the thing that stuck out the most Consistently, and, and conversations I was having with people who didn't know my background beyond there's a guy who's interested in this mm. um, kept on coming back to the idea that we have, we have the capacity, we have the system to make good players or good athletes. We don't have the capacity or we don't seem to be able to take them from good to being great players yeah. or great athletes. Um, and I think football is a perfect example um, is that you see countless African players um, developing to a good standard domestically at home um, and suddenly they reach great heights when they move to the Premier League or to, yeah, Europe okay. or to the USA um, and it, it, it's almost like light bulb after light bulb in these conversations where it's like well something's missing it, it seems to be there's no performance support there's nothing beyond technical development um, that's happening mm. um, and I think that's where we kind of slotted ourselves in Right, so what, what is it that you're seeing? Are there any common trends from the different um, environments that you're working with or cases or um, uh, teams? Or is it that, as you're talking about, almost that troubleshooting approach where you go in and mm -hmm. spend a bit of time observing and understanding and mm -hmm. connecting and developing relationships from which you can then make decisions? Difficult, difficult. Uh, and this is, the, I guess, this is the crux of where we are now. Is that I think that initially, 
we had that mentality. It was a case of saying, okay, what's missing? What or what's missing from a, a system that we recognise? Um, so if this was the UK, what would we be doing differently? Or if this was Australia, if this was the USA, what would we be doing differently? And then the temptation is to say, well, there's a hole there, we'll plug that hole and it will resolve the issue. Yeah. I think over the last two years, well, I think sort of a year ago, we, we learned the lesson that that isn't, isn't a solution. It's a very old school way of looking at developing anything. It's this idea of transplanting. Yeah. This idea of modernization means imitating someone else. Okay. Um, and so I think we've, we've tried very hard uh, to, to change our mindset. It's not a case of saying what's missing from a system that we recognise. It's a case of saying what's, what's the end goal? Is it to be, if it's producing a great football, football player, what are the components of that? And how do we do that um, in a, a locally driven way? Yeah. And that system isn't going to look like what we have at home. Locally driven. So that's an interesting word in that sense and mm. that, that speaks volumes about the implications of, of being able to support but ultimately empower. You want the, the, the local people to be able to take it on. Absolutely. I, I think, it, well, again, going back to having conversations, meeting people and, and going and seeing, seeing people is that so sports development in the developing world has gone along two lines. The, the first is mass participation, getting six formers of uni students to, to teach, quote-unquote, um, kids how to play football. And it's great, it's noble, and I haven't got time to give you the full critique, but it's, it's, it's about getting as many people playing sport as possible. Yeah. Fantastic. The other side of it is, is sort of sports performance development, which tends to be very, um, and I'll pick my words carefully, it's very imperialistic in the way it, it goes about um, doing it. it. It tends to be a case of, um, there's talent there, um, let's throw money at it, see what we can get from it, and if it all goes tits up, we'll, we'll leave. And the bubble ex- it kind of pops, um, which isn't sustainable. And we've seen there's countless examples of money being pumped into systems, um, you're seeing short-term results or not seeing short-term results, and then they're just dissipating yeah. into nothingness. And what tends to happen is, is, uh, is a Westerner, whether they're British, American, Australian, will come in, they'll bring their own team with them, they'll bring their own equipment, expertise with them, they'll create this bubble, that the only thing they'll accept is the, is the talent pool they have access to, um, and then they'll work and work and work, but it's not building any sort of capacity locally, it's not solving anything locally in a sustainable manner, it's just saying, well, we, we can do what we do at home, somewhere that's slightly hotter. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that doesn't sound too much different from most Premiership football team management <laughs> systems <laughs> yeah. or player yeah. recruitment. And I think, and I think that's, 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 that is the crux of it, is that we are very used to this idea, um, and especially even in that consultancy model, is the idea of we know it works, we'll come and we'll do, deliver it, yeah. and it will work. And I think that it's, it's totally ignorant to the, the kind of social aspects, the cultural differences you're going to come across, um, and most importantly, the fact that it's, if it's not locally sustainable, if it can't be driven through um, both economically, through the talent pool, and, the, and I mean that from an athlete perspective, and yeah. also from a practitioner perspective locally, then it's going to collapse at some point. Mm. Because at some point, the money's going to dry up, um, and people aren't going to want to go and sort of spend their, their year there. 
Um, and so it had to change. And I think that's where we're at now is the sense that it's all about now about collaboration for us in the sense that we have put together a team of, of, of really, really good practitioners. Um, and we can work in collaboration with projects on the ground across the developing world. We're focused mainly on sub-Saharan Africa at the moment. Um, work with local stakeholders and say, listen, we've got a team of people here who have um, no end of experience, no end of qualifications in what they do. They are experts in their field. And together with your local knowledge, we can come up with solutions that will look very different to what we do at home, but can solve your performance issues. And we can develop mm. elite, elite performance in a, in a totally different way. I'm, re- I'm reflecting back to the early 2000s, mm. the post-Sydney era, the crash that they had, but the influx of money in the UK, and we just recruited Aussie after Aussie. Mm-hmm. And they were lovely people, yeah. as you'd expect. But they, they tried to impose and introduce, well, it's always worked like this in a state system mm-hmm. in Australia, so it's going to work over here. And, um, and, and we learned so much, but it didn't make it sustainable because when they left, or, or they actually didn't improve the results not much mm-hmm. uh, from 2000 to 2004. But I'm also hearing and thinking about uh, one of the other guests, Adam Conlon, talking about working with locals on the ground in disaster zones, flood relief, yeah. is that you've got to work with them, you've got to establish the relationship, see what the capacity is there. We are experts in transportation, mm-hmm. Medicare, etc., etc. but we've got to get you guys working mm-hmm. so that you can take this on. Yeah, it's, it's about building capacity. Um, mm-hmm. And it's about, so it's, it's about having the, 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 I guess, the strength of mind to say, or the, the lack of ego to say, we don't have the answers. Mm. And, and I, I'm, I'm freely admitting that Half Performance and our team, whilst incredibly good at what they do, we don't have the answers. We're working in Uganda at the moment, we don't have the answer to produce Uganda being a World Cup football team. But we do have, is we have a, a group of experts um, and we have an approach and we can work in collaboration to find out what those solutions might be. Mm. Um, but it's interesting talking about sort of going back and, and seeing what we do when we brought in all the Aussies. And the same mm-hmm. is true in rugby. I think the earliest part of my rugby career, every S&C coach was not Aussie or Kiwi. Yeah. Um, and it actually, through kind of what I do now, I've learned about kind of the kind of the basis of, of how that works. And Ivan Eilich, who's Eilich, I think, is a kind of philosopher sociologist. He talks about a, a radical monopoly. And he talks about it from a kind of anti-capitalist, communist perspective. But actually, the, the carryover to sports, fascinating, in the sense that we have this idea that there's one way of doing something, and that becomes a radical monopoly, and it, it almost trumps everything else. Mm. Um, this idea that there's, there's one approach. Um, and there's another guy, um, Mick Green, he writes a lot about the uniformity of elite sports development, um, and how actually we, it's all kind of comes from the Eastern Bloc, and actually, over time, it's becoming less and less diverse. Mm. Our approaches are becoming so so aligned and so similar um, that there's no innovation anymore. Mm. Um, and I think that's another driving force behind what we're doing now, is I'd love to see, when we go to the Olympics, um, I'd love to see, well, here's the, uh, the team from Bukuna Faso, and, and they, they approach their training in this way, and it's totally different to everything they're doing in the, in the UK and look at the results it's having. Um, 
And similarly, I'd love to see, uh, again, his island and they do something completely different and it's a total flop and then we've, we, can, we can learn from that. But this idea of diversifying yeah. our approaches. I always say that our approach in the UK to, to sports development is always resource stacking. Get the best resources and stack them on top of each other and then we'll create something great at the end of it. And it's very similar to what we did in the Second World War We had when we went off in, on bombing missions. Um, and our bombers kept on getting shot down. Obviously that's not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was, there was kind of two, there's a solution brought about by the Americans. They say, well, let's, let's just cover the plane with armor um, and let's put more guns on it to shoot these fighter jets. This sounds quite familiar to a lot of political <laughs> commentary. <right? laughs> well, I, think it's, I think it's pretty similar to the thing, but it's the idea of this resource stacking. We'll just we'll put loads of armor on it, we'll put guns on it, we'll shoot the fighter jets down, we'll be able to do the, do the bombing mission and come home and everyone will be safe. Um, that made it incredibly expensive to make these planes in yeah. terms of the material. You then had four people on that plane, um, and all this weight um, made the planes incredibly slow. So more of them got shot down. The American solution again, um, more armor, more guns. And it, it went on this cycle until someone came along and said, no, 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 strip everything away. I don't want any guns in it, I don't want any armor on it, make it out of wood. Um, and the plane was so light that it could outrun the fighters, complete the missions, and it had a far higher success rate than any of these, these armoured planes. And I think that, for me, is the, the perfect analogy for what we're trying to do, is that instead of putting more armour on, instead of putting more resources on, sort of into these environments, we're trying to look at what works, where we can kind of find a workaround and come at it from a completely different perspective. Mm. Um, and it's a challenging way of working, it's a really challenging way of working, but it's... It's, it's, I think, for me, it's the only way we can see sustainable change in making the sport fairer. Right. Wow, gosh, there's a lot there. <laughs> in terms of deep, deep human drivers about progress, because mm-hmm. we wouldn't be here if we weren't interested in progress. Mm-hmm. But the spillover from that is wanting more or getting fatter or yeah. bigger, bigger towns and cities or faster cars. Um, we're almost being um, quite sparing and really focused. There's a lovely quote in the British Museum um, a few seasons ago, and it was true innovation, true italicised, so mm. I can tell there was a little emphasis on <laughs> yeah. that. True innovation comes from famine, mm. and a case of scarcity of resource. So now what? How do you move forward from that point yeah. of, uh, of focus, as opposed to a, you know, a, a Formula One approach of just yeah. chuck more and more at it? Yeah. Exactly. Alright, we're talking in quite, ve- quite lofty <laughs> existential yeah. terms here and concepts, so, um, so we'll have to book you in for a, another philosophical session or something, <laughs> but okay, give us a couple of cases, give a couple of examples, what, what's, what's um, a couple of proof points of what you've been up to? I think a really simple example has been nutrition. There was a particular project again in, in sub-Saharan Africa where there was a it was a, um, a cultural thing where you would eat meat at the start of the month um, yeah. and then for, for the rest of the month you, you, you wouldn't, you'd, you'd survive off it's a type of millet um, not ideal uh, for, for training especially if you're training con- a, a kind of a consistent volume intensity frequency throughout the month um, and so a simple solution would be or how we'd solve it here would be to say well we need to do something to change the way they eat it. So we, we spread the protein out across the month yeah. or we get more protein in 
And so we toy with different ideas. We toyed with whether we can look at insect protein, um, right. whether we can look at powders. So sort of very kind of like, well, we just need to get more food on into the uh, into the place. Um, none of those were really goers. It wasn't. It wasn't something that was sustainable. It would have taken a huge cost to to do. Um, the reason they eat the protein at the start of the month is that they normally eat a whole animal, and then they keep on eating until it runs out. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, we've hit a roadblock. So nutrition's a no, a no go. So what can we do? Well, work out how we can structure our training differently. So we kind of, we go head, hard and heavy and then we taper off and do something different. We look at the technical aspects later in the month. Yeah, okay. Um, right. That's a kind of, I guess, I guess, a perfect, a simple example of how you can kind of look at things from a different perspective. Um, I, I think that's, that's a point the, the, the best example of how we've, had, how we've come up with a, a solution, if you like. Um, I think a lot of our work, though, is also spent persuading people on the ground that they don't need to keep on looking over their shoulder what's happening here. Um, and it's okay to do things their own way, to structure right. things totally differently. Um, and as long as it's based in, entrenched in, in real science and it's, it's got some sort of evidence behind it and we can justify what we're doing, then we don't need to stick to hard and fast rules that we've almost having imposed upon us um, overseas. So, and, and so they give us the, the protein mm. uh, periodization or reperiodization <laughs> training to yeah. see protein intake. Do they notice a difference? Do you, do you see any, any differences with uh, how the athletes responded? Yeah, massively. I think primarily the, the athletes felt energised. But I think that the, the big knock on effect almost immediately was the idea that, okay, well, we're doing something now. It's like okay. we've, we've got something that's ours. Yeah. And I think that's it's that, almost that buy in. It's like we're not chasing something that I know is impossible. Um, we've changed something and, and it's now it's mine, it's my program. It's, we've, we're doing something that's gonna improve my performance and it's it's specially bespokely designed for me. Okay, so in many ways you're, at the bare minimum, you're sort of undoing some of the leveling of expectation. I, I'm mm-hmm. expecting to perform all throughout the month mm-hmm. outside influences and comparing self to others mm-hmm. and you're easing some of that pressure, saying, here's, here's where you need to step up, mm-hmm. and other times we can focus on other areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Like so it's almost like an innovation like mentality to come in, innovate with a certain set of constraints to, yeah. to achieve an outcome. That's it. Um, that's exactly what it is. And I think it's, it's about also encouraging um, the local stakeholders not to be afraid of imposing those constraints and us working together to find a solution that's based in those constraints and it's not a case of us coming in and saying do this do that this works this doesn't work um it's very much just saying what is the situation and then let's work together to create a totally new solution yeah wow fantastic and so um and you said that there's been an evolution of how you've worked with uh, different environments so where, where is it sort of at now, what's the kind of current thinking about how you can best support people on the mm-hmm. ground? Well, I think we're young. I mean, as an organisation, we're we're two and a half, three years old. Um, we have had very much a kind of scattergun approach, as all kind of startups do, in the sense of we grabbed hold of opportunities. Um, we had high turnover. We we use consultants that we bring people in for individual projects, and yeah. then they they go back to their normal jobs. I think over the last year we've we've kind of hunkered down and we said right let's let's stop this scattergun approach let's identify um, 
projects that we can have a massive impact. So small, small scale projects where the impact is big. Um, and so we've got three projects that are based um, in, in Africa that we're going to perform sequentially. Um, so concurrent to that, I, I knew that we had to have some stability in the team so we could really start driving um, our approach and we could have a team that are, can almost become experts in what we do. Uh, that started with bringing in Kelly Pritchard Prestjet as our head of performance support, mm. um, which allowed me to kind of step back and look at the kind of the bigger picture and focus less on the actual performance support. Um, and it also gave me the opportunity to bring in people who are a lot better than me uh, at what they do. So brought Kelly in, um, and then Kelly and I have put together, I guess, a team of, of lead practitioners in their individual fields, sports science, athletic development, uh, sports nutrition, and sports psychology. So tell us more about some of those upcoming projects. What's the, what's the hope, what's the dream in that sense? So there's three projects there, kind of umbrella under something called the Kanji projects, which is kind of um, our approach. Uh, the first is a project in Uganda, um, and that's a collaboration with uh, an academy called the Football for Good Academy, um, which are based uh, in northern Uganda in Gulu and also in the capital city Kampala. Um, their goal is to become the kind of premier elite full-time football academy um, on the continent. And they've done incredible work. A guy called Adrian uh, Bradbury uh, runs it, um, and they're doing some incredible work. Um, and I guess that we're coming now in and saying, well, we can now take it from good to great um, by helping build capacity in the kind of performance support side of things. Mm. Um, so that's our main focus now. Um, we've, been, we've been working remotely with them for the last, well, since uh, June, July. Um, all of our team, full deployment, full team deployment um, in early 2019. Um, and then we'll be working with them for a maximum of 18 months where we're trying to enact as much um, change and development as we possibly can. And then we'll step back into being more of a kind of um, sounding board for them. Right. Um, but by that time, um, we want to have people who are, who are local to the project, working on the project, developing it, developing the performance support provisions. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about mm-hmm. the, the funding, the political uh, situation, the sort of working with the local consulates, for example, what, what needs to happen from idea, mm-hmm. identifying opportunity and actual delivery? Well, the first thing we had to do is when we were identifying these projects, we deliberately chose areas where there was no active conflicts, there was um, relative political stability, to kind of just head off any of that kind of that kind of issue okay. that can kind of just kneecap a project. Um, Uganda is a stable country, has been for 10 years. Um, and uh, and so that, that was kind of got that stuff out of the way. The funding side of things is a, is a perennial challenge and it's kind of one of my main roles um, at, at the organisation is to keep on making sure that we have the funding to go and do what we do. None of our staff are volunteers, uh, we're not a charity, we're a social enterprise and um, we, are, we, we pay way below market value for the kind of people we have but none of our staff are volunteers. As a social enterprise we work with athletes and teams in the UK and we reinvest those profits and it kind of creates this self-sustaining mm. um, enterprise. Um, but at the moment we are still reliant on donations and investment from foundations and grants um, and that's, that, as I say, a perennial challenge for me is, is talking to people and wearing suits and stuff and, and doing that. So that's a big challenge, um, that's something that we, we have to keep on working on. Um, 
beyond funding making it work is 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 basically for first and first and foremost is forging a relationship with our collaborators so who we're working with uh, on the ground so we um we have regular calls um, we're currently working through a, a kind of a remote audit if you like yeah. opening up those avenues where we can bounce ideas off and we can ask questions and we can get a really good feel for it uh, and as I say in, 2009, in early 2019 the whole team would go down and I guess that's that first deployment is just to see the lay of the land we observe we don't intervene with anything we observe we ask questions we get the best picture we possibly can and then again we work um, with with the, with the guys at the Football for Good Academy and, and we come up with a plan a mm. proposal where can we have the most impact what can we look to develop where can we build capacity mm. and so um, so what if that project goes well, Uganda as an example, mm-hmm. um, what would be the kind of dream outcome? I, I, I get asked this question quite often. I think the dream outcome in the short term is that we go away knowing that we've had a positive impact and we've built capacity and we, we've created something that's regenerative in design. It's going to continuously get better without us. Mm. Um, I think that's the kind of short term goal. I think the long term goal for me anyway, is that with all these projects that somewhere down the line we come back and we're the students in the sense that we go back and Football for Good are saying, listen, we're getting, we're able to develop this aspect of our players or we're able to do this with our players using this solution. And for us to say, do you know what, that makes 10 times more sense than what we're doing in the UK and it's 100 times cheaper. And then we take that back Right. Um, but I will apply it to other and apply, disadvantage areas. Yeah, right. but also apply it, apply it to, to the developed world. Mm-hmm. I think that we, we, sometimes we, we're too hard and fast that we've got it right, they haven't, they've got to catch up. And some of the solutions in the, in the informal economies around the world are, are far superior to anything that we have, and far less wasteful than we have. So I'd love it if we could go and find out, find ways in which we can develop athletes in a more efficient manner, in a, in a, in a, in a more, um, a less resource stacking way. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're on the ground in in January, um, yeah. and the the idea is that you'll observe, but then go back and intervene and su- and support mm-hmm. um, and and monitor that as you go forward. The dream that you end up going back um, and learning. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, where's the dream? Where would you like to take this? What's sort of five, maybe ten, five, five, ten years down the line? Right? <laughs> Let's not stretch it too far. Yeah. But it's got to be lofty enough because I know there's a bit of grind to actually making this work mm-hmm. um, the, the short answer is I don't know um, and that's I don't, I don't mean that flippantly I think it's a case of um, when I started this it was always it was supposed to be a sixth month get out of my system thing and it's snowballed and it's become something else yeah um, I think I think the dream would be to move the needle just a fraction um, that that's that I can, I can look back and say sport's a little bit fairer or it's living up to its ideals a little bit better because of what we've achieved and what we've tried, tried to trigger. Um, what that looks like, I don't really know. Maybe it's a case of seeing uh, someone that we've worked with achieving something on the world stage, mm. um, but maybe that's a little bit too outcome orientated. Maybe it'd be just be nice to see a, a massive, a, a significant improvement in performance. Um, but I don't know, I don't have an exit strategy. I'm one of these people who, who jumps two feet or um, sets off from port and I don't know what the, uh, the outcome is. Yeah, it sounds really core 
purpose-driven ideas about where where's next for you in that sense. Yeah. I think it I think it is purpose-driven, and I'm I'm cautious to to make it all about sort of my sort of notions of purpose. But I think since kind of we brought this team together and, and Kelly's come in, um, not one of those people has been someone that I've had to convert to what I'm saying or, or it hasn't been a case of having to really sell them this idea these people these individuals have come in Kelly's come in and sort of said oh, that, that makes sense and, and I've got my own ideas about this and do you know what that makes sense and, and then almost sort of challenging my way of thinking about it and I, I don't think it's something that is just I don't think I'm particularly wise because I've come across this I think there's something that in all of us we are fully aware that the sport isn't where it could be Mm. Um, so I think that purpose is a, is a shared purpose that all of us have Peter King fantastic um, legend of British sport I remember hearing him talk recently about how questionable sport is when it gets so drenched in more and more performance mm. focused medals and, um, and he said we've got to recognise that, that sport's one of the very few things that can give hope to a society and in some of those societies that haven't got an awful lot of hope because they're born into disadvantage, yeah. sports sport doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing mission that you're on and, and instinctively when I first saw your material and connected with you and thought get it, that's brilliant mm-hmm. and how worthwhile and um, in- incredible that is as an initiative. Thank you, I appreciate that. You can follow Tim on Twitter. He's got the coolest Twitter handle going, at TheTimPanzee and at Harper Performance. And if you're inspired by his story and his cause, then you can contribute to the Kanju campaign on his site, harperperformance.co.uk. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ingham underscore Steve and the wider team at support underscore champs. You can also get us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube and subscribe through the website. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes.